Hello, friends. Welcome back to Operation Opera. Elise and I had a chance to chat with Richard Betts, who is a New Zealand-based writer and journalist in the world of classical music. We chatted about all kinds of things, and sometimes I interviewed him, and sometimes he seemed to interview us. But it was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it. Here we are. Richard Betts, welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Um, so. We had this great conversation a little bit ago, and one of my favorite things that you said during it was you told this amazing story about Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, and I was wondering if you might share that on our show. Um, well, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf was, was um, as, as your listeners probably know, um, quite a particular sort of personality, and there's a very famous in England uh, show on the radio called Desert Island Discs, and it's been going since the 1930s. And every week somebody comes on and picks their eight favorite uh, favorite records that they would take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. And, you know, the usual suspects, everybody takes a Beatles album or their favorite Mahler recording or West Side Story or whatever. Uh, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf chose eight of her own recordings, <laughs> which seems a very Elizabeth Schwarzkopf thing to do. Um, but she explained it by saying that, well, these recordings remind me of these people, and I've, I've never, I've never listened back to my recordings, so this would be a good, this would be a good chance to uh, revel in the beauty of my own voice, essentially. Um, and, and to be fair to her, she had a heck of a voice. Right, we've we've talked about that too, like just you know the differences in, in people's taste, what they like, what they don't like, you know, different voices, why, and, and and you had mentioned that she's you know arguably probably the best Mozart singer soprano that ever was. <laughs> my my experience of singers uh, was formed very much through recordings, not from singing or seeing performers live, and so for me she's. Um, the, the was one of the first voices that really captured my attention on record or on CD. As it was. What was it about the voice that caught you? Like, you know, what are the qualities or what are the what are the characteristics of it that really that really made you want to listen? I think it sounds trite if I just say, "Gosh, that's be- that's a beautiful sound," um, but really, that at that stage, and I would have been maybe fifteen or sixteen. That was all I understood about singers. So I would listen particularly to Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and Joan Sutherland was another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and these weren't people I'd ever seen uh, filmed perform. So I was just listening to the voice. And for me, Joan Sutherland just in particular had that purity of tone, that absolute incredible tone, especially at the top. Um, but I guess my first introduction to Elizabeth Schwarzkopf was through uh, her recording of the four last songs. And I'm not sure whether it was 
the fact that it was that astonishing, all those astonishing pieces of music um, that really pushed me towards listening to Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. But that was definitely, uh, I remember that being sort of the first time I heard a singer and thought, wow, that's really quite something, a, a, a classical singer. It, it is interesting too that, that the pieces that you really gravitated toward, you know, for, for listening are so actual songs because song repertoire really does lend itself to, um, to a recording in a way I think that's actually a lot easier to listen to than opera. Yeah, um, I agree. Right, because you, you are meant to, with the voice, create every part of the experience. And also I was hearing, um, particularly Joan Sutherland, uh, an early CD I bought was of uh, French opera arias, and she's singing the, the bell song from Lacme, for example. Um, I wouldn't necessarily sit down and listen to Lacme, but drawing sort of the great aria from it worked for me correctly at that time. Well, it's very, it's a very showy piece. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, that, that's that's what it is. It's like, ready? And now I will win the competition by singing this song. <laughs> like... In my defense, I was a sort of teenager at the time, so. <laughs> right, right. So, so you were but looking that, that... at the theatrics of it, right? The yeah. Yeah, and I think like a lot of people, that's also how I came to uh, be exposed to a lot of this music was through compilations, that kind of thing. Highlights. Yeah. It's the best way to enjoy opera, <laughs> especially I... Wagner. No offense, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Like, one of my favorite uh, Wagner um, albums that I have is actually, there's no singing on it. Like it's all, it's all of the orchestral, you know, huge, beautiful, sweeping um, melodies. Light motifs. Yes, it's all of his light motifs. Yes, exactly. Um, and so that's a different, yeah, it's a different thing. I recently bought, um, I do a lot of uh, thrift store um, buying of music because it's all there for a dollar, you know. And um, I recently bought a, a complete Monteverdi Orfeo, a very early, early recording from the 50s, I think it was, um, which I will probably never listen to. But yesterday I bought a single CD highlights um, package, which I will probably listen to. I wonder why that is. I mean, I guess there's a reason. I mean, when you're going to the opera, you're like, okay, I'm I'm gearing up. I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the moment, and you know, I'll enjoy something along the way. And I'm sitting here. Um, but when you have the CD, it's kind of like, do I really want to press the button to like move through, or you know, do I really want to scroll through all of these other pieces and like. Well, I absolutely have a, have a theory that anybody can enjoy a classical music concert, even if they don't like classical music. There's the, the yeah. buzz in the hall early on. There are people really well-dressed and some people not at all well-dressed. And there's that whole experience of going out in an event, which doesn't happen on record. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, I used to be a publicist for an orchestra here in Auckland, New Zealand, and I absolutely convinced that I could take anyone to a concert and they would enjoy it. Watching the orchestra sort of swaying together, almost like they're mesmerized by the beauty of what it is they're creating, which you don't, you don't get that experience on record. It's true, because part of it, part of the experience is the visual part. And yeah, yeah you don't, you don't get that from just, just the CD. 
And it's not just visual, right? Because it's also, you know, they've done research to say, to show that, you know, our hearts in an experience where we're in a communal experience, especially with music, like our hearts actually beat together. I unfortunately can't cite any, you know, any actual, like, <laughs> uh, I can't, this is all, I believe you. This is all, you know, <laughs> like, sure, Rach. <laughs> like, you know, but I was talking to a pedagogue the other day who was telling me about this. They're like, look, there's, you know, there's, there's scientific research that's been done, you know, they've, um, where our, our actual body molecular on the molecular level, we, we begin to sort of listen to each other and talk to each other in that communal way that is only available um, in live performance. And, and the, the odd thing about going to a concert is that it is, uh, it's a social act, even though you're sitting watching on your own in a sense. Once the lights go down, you're not chatting to the person next to you, but there is that sense of community. That, you're me. As yes. that, that imagined community. Yes, it's a thing. It's synchro- It's the heart synchronized. That's what they call it. Yeah. Okay. I'm seeing all sorts of studies here. I just did a quick Google search. <laughs> Who's our friend? I do think it's pretty fascinating. And, and I've definitely had those kinds of experiences. I remember seeing a play and uh, it was on Broadway. I remember afterward walking out of the theater and looking around at me and having everyone around me have the same kind of expression on their face. You know, uh, it was a matinee and we went out into the sun and we're like wait what time is it what day is it where are we and having had this shared experience um of of theater that was you know transportative and and when it can be that way you know why do we allow it to not always be that way i think that's something that i think about a lot definitely me too that that reminds me of a a a concert i went to again here in auckland the performance was avo pitt's berlin a mess and the minute the choir started and I just started crying I couldn't stop crying I can't even explain why that was and then after interval the conductor came out and said Arvo Pert was listening to that from Estonia and we just had a brief brief conversation about it and he was very pleased with the performance and everyone sort of went oh a whole shared moment that we not only shared with each other in the hall but with the guy who wrote the thing in Estonia it's something quite special about that. Absolutely, isn't that interesting? And and mm. in the moment when when you were having that feeling, there's no way you could have known that. You didn't know that, of course. And yet there was something about it that was different. And I I think I think something similar can happen. Just, I mean, how many times have you been thinking about a person randomly, and then that person sends you a text, or mm. um, or you reach out to someone, you're like, hey, I just felt like I needed to talk to you, and they're like, oh my gosh, I was just thinking about you, and you know, thank you so much. Um, I, I think that that connection is real and that connection, especially with music, you know, is, is extremely strong and it's meant to be a, a binding force in the world as a, as a way for us to have those kinds of communal experiences and what they can, what they can mean for the betterment of mankind. The, the composer Max Richter um, says something diff- uh, similar. He um, talks about music as a social endeavor which might be why he wrote this sort of long eight hour piece called Sleep, where everyone goes to sleep during, during the performance. And he sees it as a way of communing. And what would, what would it be like if we were all in a hall together and someone was playing music and we went to sleep at the same time? I don't know if I could do it. I have this thing where if it's music that I don't like just know completely, I can't fall asleep. Like my brain is just sort of moving through it. Like, oh, what's happening now? And oh, that's- Yeah, what, what comes next? Yeah, yeah. 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 
but I know that there are people who that's exactly what they do. You know, they put on white, their white noise is either the TV or they turn on a certain station and they just listen to music and they fall asleep to it. Yeah, I can't do that. Yeah, you can't do that either. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, so one of these studies is actually human heart rhythm synchronized while co-sleeping. So it could be something that happens because of the shared experience with the music, but also with the sleeping. So that's like a double whammy, that experience. <laughs> that's so cool. So Richard, tell us a little bit about, like, I don't know if you want to share some of your favorite stories or like what, what it's been like for you, um, you know, as a writer and like, I've I read a little bit of, you know, some things that you've written and like, you're just, it's very clever. I really enjoy um, your flair and style. Um, what, what, um, what got you into it? Like, why, why do you, why do you stay with music? Well, music, yeah, music's what I know best. I've sort of written about all sorts of things. When I started as a journalist, I was actually a technology journalist. Um, but music has always been the thing that excites me. And it still excites me every day. I've, I'm looking to my left. I've got a massive pile of CDs waiting to be listened to that uh, a friend was kind enough to gift to me. And um, I think, you know, I'll work through that a couple of, a, a couple of days. And I'm just really excited by the idea of listening to, to this, this music. I don't have a CD player anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I completely understand that. Yeah. Um, why have a CD player when, um, when Spotify has everything, you know, on your phone? For me, it's a matter of... But it doesn't, and it often doesn't tell you who's singing, which drives me crazy. Yeah, right, especially the classical stuff, right? Oh um, Here's this one, and I'm like, thanks, who is it? <laughs> there are a couple of things about physical media versus versus digital media. First is really practical thing in the sense of the sound quality mm -hmm. of Spotify just drives me up the wall. I, I'm not an audiophile by any any sense of the word, but you as a performer are making a recording, the effort that you go into to make that recording as perfect as possible or to have the range of emotions and the range of sounds that you can put on a recording and you think Spotify lops off the bottom of that and the top of that, you know, as a, as an artist, it must be awful to, um, to have that happen to your, to your music. Well, there are many times when I've done recordings and before I sort of found the right microphone to use for me, or I'd go into a booth and I'd record and I'm just like, this is not it. I'm like, I don't know who that was. That, that's not me. That's not me. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, because the voice doesn't have, you, you don't have the space um, in a booth for overtones to sort of, you know, to travel. You just don't, right. there's no, there's no space. <laughs> and yeah, and finding, finding and balancing with that different medium is, is a, is a challenge. I had a, I had a coach once who talked to me about what it was like to hear Birgit Nelson in person versus what oh, wow, yeah. listening to her on recordings. Cause on recordings very often she can sound very shrill or just kind yeah. of like, it, the sound can be very sort of dowdy. And, and it's like, well, wait, this is, this is Birgit Nelson. What's the deal? And it's because in a house where you have the space for the, for the voice to become what it is, um, then the, you know i mean it, it's it's the difference between watching and i mean forgive me for the analogy but like when you see a seal on the beach you know kind of like you know moving around trying its best and then it gets to the water and you're like oh that makes a lot more sense and i think that 
I think that it, it's sort of similar when it comes to to voices and and the sounds of them in in different spaces. But yeah. for me, then, what's just imagine that, and you've you've made your recording, but you've captured it perfectly, and now what Spotify does is go and messes with that. Chop it. That, down. That's that's what annoys that's what annoys me about Spotify. But yeah. I use it all the time, um, so I'm a hypocrite, and that's okay. Um, <laughs> So Isn't it interesting, though, how our ears, you know, in these days of, you know, different different types of recordings, I'd, I'm not an expert in that at all. But from what you're saying, it, it sounds like and I know Rachel has a big bone to pick with auto tune, right? She's been talking about this for years. But um, the way that listeners are experiencing sound, you know, and, and Rachel and I did a project um, fairly recently with with folk tunes um, for children where we were really we really wanted it to be about the sound of the voice the human voice um, more more raw and more you know honest more authentic um, because children need to grow up hearing authentic noises and the sounds that the human human voice and other acoustic instruments can make which they're not necessarily getting they're getting this sort of like you're saying this um, I don't know what would you how would you describe it um, what what we what the result is when they when they trim off the, the top and the bottom like you're saying um, well, it's compression yeah it's interesting what you say but, um, just then because a study has been done and younger people now expect music to sound like it does on Spotify yeah so that yeah. More, that more compressed sound and that's that's okay that, that's fine. I, is it? I don't feel like that's okay <laughs> at all because it's not real, uh, and it's not, and it's also not beautiful. Like compression, you know. My favorite engineers that I work with, they they know oh. they know that I'm like no compression, and they're and you know when I work with someone new, they always kind of roll their eyes a little bit, and I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, it's going to be a little more work for you. I'm sorry, like, <laughs> but um, but I don't want I don't want the compression because if you put it on there you know i mean there are times when you can do a very little bit and you have to be really judicious judicious with it but you, you absolutely can hear it because it takes out it takes out the overtones it takes out the space how often in music is the emptiness as important as as the the notes like the, yeah. the rest is just as important the you know the space for it to kind of breathe the negative space yes just like in visual art. Yeah. Or the, the Miles Davis bits between the notes, right? Bits between the notes, yeah, exactly. The, um, the other thing about physical media is tactility. You, you can touch it and you can smell it and you can taste it if you really want to. And you, you, engage, you engage a whole range of senses that you don't necessarily engage when you're listening to a digital file. And I listen to a lot of digital music, like I said, um, but it, it, it's different. You're less engaged with it. It's more consumable, right? And when something is eas more easily consumed, maybe you don't think about it quite as much. I don't know. I, yeah, possibly. And also, if you don't pay for music, it's literally worthless. Mm -hmm. But are we, are we teaching ourselves to devalue the art? Right, or are we not teaching our ears how to appreciate those true acoustic sounds? Both, both, I guess, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm thinking about, I mean, the beginning of that, right, at least as far as I recall, is Napster, you know, when, yeah. when people yeah. started creating a way to just hack in and just get whatever you wanted for free and woohoo, you know, it also created a, a an underground indie music scene that was really cool because it also means that people that otherwise would have had no voice or no way to be heard are able to be heard. But it all, but it also means that, like what you're saying, Richard, the, the devaluation of, of of music and recognizing how much goes into the process of creating it and how often people um, just don't value that. Like they just and 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 are incensed when when you ask <laughs> to be valued. <laughs> like you know, it's like, well, this is going to be this much money, really? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that has flow on effects. Um, in theatres, you know, if if people are used to getting music for free, is a hundred New Zealand dollars for a, a concert ticket? That sounds like a lot of money if you're used to not paying for for music. Yeah. So what what does one do to create something? And I guess this comes back to and they've been doing this with art as well, you, to create something that feels like that communal experience, which you can't get in any other way. And that's, I think, where live music actually and performance in general and, and art can really thrive is having created something that feels communal and feels like it's about, it's about the people in that space at the time. I, I did this concert recently and, um, and, as it was live streamed, like, you know, you do, you feel the presence of the people listening in and watching and, and the, the hope that they have for you. It's like, man, I hope she doesn't fall on her face. And I'm saying, man, so do I, um, <laughs> you know, like, so I'm like, and if I do, it's there for everyone to see. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. That's, that's really interesting that you say you felt the presence of people on your live stream. I went to a, uh, a concert that was being live streamed and there were only 10, 15, 20 people in the audience um, because there was, it was the middle of the pandemic and there was no audience. And it, it was, it was a very, very strange thing to be in the hall for. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I, and I, I wondered what it was like to be on stage during that. And it was, it was a full orchestral concert. Yeah, because you do, you feed off of the people there. Like it's all, Part of it and so if there isn't anyone there how how does it feel like yeah I think I think knowing I mean like you know when I know my, my mother and my grandmother who haven't been able to see me perform in a year and a half are able to tune in and watch something that I'm doing like that gives me a boost of joy you know that gives me a, a sense of like this is for you mom you know or whatever <laughs> like, um, which is why you're a musician and I'm a journalist because the idea of people sitting and listening into me uh, me performing would yeah, it's terrifying, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting because, you know, and it had been a while, like actually for that show, I had not, I had not performed any of those pieces for a live audience ever. Like all of it was new. As and they were amazing. Oh, for you up, do you think the fact that you hadn't performed those? Did that before? scare me? Like, was I afraid? Um, no, because I performed them so much, like, in my own little space and in my own time. And, and, and I do a lot of visualization exercises and just 
you know, getting myself sort of revved up and prepared and having really specific ideas about what I wanted to do, you know, what I was going to say, all of that and, and setting it up so that I, I would, um, I would feel, feel as though it was, you know, fairly old hat because I worked on it over and over and over again. But, um, mm-hmm. but there's always that level of like, am I going to have, you know, and I, I use this term, but, but it's the, it's the only term that I can really be like, am I, I going to have a brain fart? Like in the middle of this extremely wordy Britain song, maybe, <laughs> hopefully not, you know, like. As a young person, I played classical guitar and um, what caused me to give up performing in public was having a brain fart and yeah. uh, leaving out an entire middle section of, of a piece of music. But it was at that point that I realized this is not for me and I don't have to do it. Absolutely. And, and that is valid. Like going through that process and realizing like, oh, I'm actually not a performer. And like, I think for me, you know, when I've had those moments, like I get down on myself and I'm like, oh man, maybe I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Da, da, da. And then I remember like, oh wait, but I, I, I love it. And then it's just a question of, okay, well, what do I need specifically? And especially for me as a person with ADHD, like, you know, those, those things are just a part of my reality. It's not, uh-huh. it's not something that ever will go away. It's not something that I can, you know, it, it just means that I have to prepare in a different way and prepare, like over-prepare um, in order to be confident. But it also is what I think creates that sense of spontaneity in performance um, because, because that's, that's, that's how my brain works. Mm-hmm. You gotta be present. So were there any brain farts? Cause I didn't notice any, Rachel. Um, no, actually, I, I felt like everything, everything went on pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, there was one moment where my voice was like, you know, and I just thought, well, that happened. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when I heard notice. you were, sorry, when I heard you were live streaming that concert, I, yeah. I found that quite interesting because um, I presume that uh, a lot of your audience will be outside of New Zealand and the States, probably. Yeah. And that's pro- also, I mean, not only repertoire that you'd not perform, but probably, it, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's a repertoire that not many people in the US would have come across before. Maybe. Um, I mean, song repertoire yeah doing song repertoire is always kind of a mixed bag and you have to be really careful about how you present it but i think because because it was presented in a way that was um hopefully very um um, palatable for people um i i think that yeah i mean britain's done a lot and and i think Yeah, Britain has done a lot in, in the States. Um, he's sort of a cornerstone of, of, um, of English, you know, just English language um, opera right. and, and song repertoire. But, but those particular pieces, you know, weren't necessarily. Also, I feel bad. I'm like, we're talking about my concert. We don't have to talk about, but we have, and like, we, we, can, we, we don't need to talk about my concert. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting to sort of to sort of see how people reacted and and I was grateful to have the reactions of people be very different like people responded to all different pieces on that concert which was really cool um because it meant that that you know it wasn't just like well this was definitely the best thing you could skip all the rest you know 
So was there a, what was the energy from the live audience? Oh, they were very loving and giving and kind. And I think most people, it was maybe their first, um, first classical concert. I would oh, say, wow. say probably 60% of that audience maybe had never been to a classical performance and they were coming because they either knew me, they knew me from, you know, something with my son's school or friends or, you know, just people who had never, never really seen you know, they, they came and they were like, we're so excited to come see, see your opera. And I'm, and, you know, and I'm like, oh, well, this isn't an opera, but that's okay. You know, but that. But, well, how wonderful that they were, you know, excited. Yeah. And, and they got to have that experience. And how wonderful for you that you brought that. I was grateful to be able to do it. And it was really fun. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it sort of opens the door. And I think it will for other performances here. But, it was, it was world-class singing. It was really a really wonderful concert. Thanks. Yeah. That's great. Lisa. <laughs> For you man that's awesome <laughs> i know right a true critic <laughs> well yeah a true comrade you know we we you know we're honest with each other we talk to each other really honestly about what yeah. we do and, and how we do it so that we can um you know create good things for the world i think i'm actually really excited to see the art that comes out of the last year and a half like just what people create, not just, you know, what people have written, but also, you know, how people perform when they get to be on stage again after, you know, after a year and a half or two years of being away, you know, both for their, because I have a lot of friends, you know, who are singing regularly in Berlin or at the Met or, you know, Covent Garden and these, these friends, you know, very often on social media are writing about, you know, we're writing about a burnout, you know, and missing family and, you know, how hard it is to be, you know, to be on the road all the time and to be a, to be a musician that just kind of has to um, just keep working in order to make ends meet, but has had this year and a half to actually sit back and enjoy. Also, I apologize. I don't know if you guys can hear that giant sound in my backyard of someone cutting the lawn because they had to come right now. It's okay. Um, but I'm, I'm excited about, about what the art will, how the artwork will benefit when somebody can come back as more of a whole human because they have time to feed their soul with the people that they love in the places that they love and come back to music, not as a, okay, this is my next gig. I'm going to work on this. Okay. This is what I'm doing next. This is another that because they haven't had those gigs. So now it's like, hmm, if I'm going to do music, what, what do I want to feed me? So I'm excited to see what that could be. Yeah. One, one of the, and, and kind of obliquely related to that is, um, so since restrictions in halls here have been lifted, a new opera company has arisen in Wellington um, Wellington Opera Company and you know that, that's a really good example of a community that loves its arts but didn't feel that it was necessarily being served as well as it might by the National Opera, Opera Company mm-hmm. based in Auckland um, so you know some enterprising and frankly brave people have you know started a, started a new opera company from scratch that, that, that's exciting too I, I, you know I'm sort of riffing on the idea that what's going to be coming up from artists is exciting yeah. but also the fact that there are people who want to see stuff and want 
to put stuff on. That's exciting too. Yeah. Um, they started with Don Giovanni, um, which um, was a bit of a shame because that gets played here quite a lot. But, you know, good for them. Good on them. Just for doing it. Yeah. Don Giovanni's tough. I, I uh, you know, that that's a role, <laughs> one I will never have to play. But, um, you know, just it, it's just it, it's just a tough one to visit you know as as an artist I think and there's some incredible music in it but but yeah it's I mean of of his most you know of of Mozart operas I think that might be my favorite one uh -huh. it might be because it's the most interesting emotionally and you know has some of the most beautiful solo music in it hmm. I don't know <laughs> it's a good one it is right yeah, you sing yes. Donna, right? Yes. Yeah, it's pretty fierce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Elvira might be, well, I don't know. Eh. <laughs> Do we want to get into this? <laughs> we can. <laughs> well, they, I'm, and, and the Wellington Opera Company did um, uh, give a, a nod in the direction to Me Too. So um, that mm. was acknowledged in the performance. Um, hmm. if that's where you were going with that Lisa um, well right I mean it's it, she's portrayed in many different ways right sometimes uh, as a pregnant woman um, you know coming to to find the father of her baby and and hold him accountable or you know but definitely the thing I find most interesting about Elvira is that she is just so back and forth right she still loves him <laughs> she still wants to be with him and yet he's this a-hole you know, and yeah. so, and so she's kind of back and forth between calling him that, you know, and saying, ah, oh, this scoundrel and uh, being angry, but then saying, oh, but I, you know, my heart still yearns for him basically. So anyway, I just find it a little, I mean, true to life, but also tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, you tell him. <laughs> I love it. Sorry, I'm... Oh, it's great. He's got a lot to say. I'm... <laughs> well, I'm I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to be clever with the mute button, <laughs> but I don't always make it in time. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Yeah, Elisa has a four-month-old, so. Oh wow. Yeah. So, um, so I know I asked you earlier about this, but I'm really excited because, like, I loved that Schwarzkopf story so much. I can't even tell you, like. <laughs> I've shared it a couple of times with people and had a good laugh just because like, and my husband laughs at me about this a lot. And he's like, you know, Rachel, you, you don't, you don't like divas, but you love divas. And like, and, and I don't really know, you know, how to, how to explain it, but you know, there is, it's true. There's a certain part of me that like anybody who just, you know, uncompromisingly will just, you know, say, but this is, this is this is what I would want and or this is who I am or you know there's there's something about that that I find that I find really beautiful even though you know it could be a nightmare to work with someone who's a little bit like that I don't know but so the, the thing is that thing about um Maria Callas demanding one dollar more than her tenor isn't it whenever <laughs> she performed anything and, and, and she was right you know they're here to see Callas they're not here to see Tito Gobi or whoever it was you know yeah, I think I think it was De Stefano she was talking about with that. De Stefano, but, yeah, yeah, you didn't see me. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating too because right, everyone, you know, there's there's this this sort of feeling that people have that 
or this belief or and and largely based in truth but sometimes maybe a little bit skewed about uh, the um you know equal pay for equal work and she clearly was you know doing more and, and being more and being the person like you're saying who's bringing in the bringing in the crowd and so for her to just do that as you know that's callous you just have mm. her she's amazing and maybe she was amazing I don't know that I would have wanted to work with her, but she was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe that's why I love opera singers so much is because I've always had this very strong sense of self and very strong sense of, you know, who I am, what I am, what what I want to contribute in the world. And and I feel like historically opera singers, although, you know, at you know, some of the earlier times were sort of equated as, you know, being prostitutes um in a similar way that that actors were they also fought for and stood up for themselves in a way that i think is kind of unique but but the characters themselves lend to that does that make sense like the characters you're portraying in operas and rachel do you remember the story about leontine price when she Pardon. she gave nine encores at her carnegie hall um solo concert oh man do, do you remember me telling you this story oh she was interviewed afterward and said how do you just keep going like that you know you've sung an entire concert already and you know nine encores and she said I just love the sound of my voice <laughs> which I do too I understand why she feels that way <laughs> it's gorgeous amazing voice I'm, I'm interested in and you've you would well have covered this but I'm uh, in previous podcasts, but I've been in conversation recently with a couple of musicians and music administrators about whose responsibility it is to introduce new music to audiences. Um, and this was around, this was raised around the fact that the Wellington Opera Company had performed Don Giovanni. And there was a couple of composers saying, well, it's a shame they chose Don Giovanni. Where was, why don't we? have something new and you know other people saying well they can't bankrupt themselves with an empty hall beforehand so I was wondering how as performers of music uh both new and old where you feel the responsibility lies in terms of presenting an audience with new music yeah I I think uh, one of the one of the highlights of my entire career was a piece of new music that I did um that was very much <laughs> outside of the box. It was um, Tan Dunn's Water Passion after St. Matthew, mm. which was, um, uh, which involved percussionists playing on bowls of water and dripping sounds and all kinds of, I did as a, <laughs> I will never forget this role because I think I sang down to a, an F below middle C and up to the E natural below queen high F it was a very rangy role and I got to play Judas Iscariot. I got to do some Mongolian throat singing. And, um, you know, it, this was, it, it was making and its premiere. And to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to be so creative with this, right? Because it wasn't something that <laughs> thousands of sopranos before me had sung. And, uh, and so the pressure was off in terms of measuring up <laughs> and it was just, it was just great, uh, great drama, great music making, great, um, just a wonderful creative experience for me. 
and and there was some worry you know like how is this going to be uh received uh, we did the the premiere of the work in utah which is a conservative state within the united states and they people loved it they kind of went bananas over it they really really liked it and why not because as we were talking about at the beginning you know, live performance, you can get, you can, you can um, kind of sit with something for longer when it's happening live in front of your face, right? Instead of something pre-recorded. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a spectacle in addition to, um, I mean, yeah, it had its sort of weird parts, but, you know, this is the composer of, of movie soundtracks and, you know, it's not necessarily writing stuff that's completely, um, you know, off, off, out in left field, you know, inaccessible but you know it was it was very different from from other things that I had ever done and I'm sure the audience as well was experiencing that type of thing for the first time and it was very well received so to me that was a testament to the fact that more more should be done like this and hats off to Brady Allred the conductor who who brought that and and hired me and made that happen because I think more I think it needs to happen more I think there needs to be more freshness and more creative license for performers um, by doing new works and, and collaborating with composers. I've done a lot of collaborations with other living composers and it's always been very rewarding. I feel like you asked about the responsibility, whose responsibility is it? And I think it's a joint responsibility between the audience and, and the administrators. You have to know your audience. And if you don't have an audience, you have to know how to build one. And well, I think one of the ways to know how to build one is to have a really good marketing team. <laughs> and just like you would have a really good marketing team for a film, whenever a film comes out, you are going to spend just as much marketing that film because nobody knows it as you are going to spend on your budget to make it the same amount. If you aren't willing to put in the money and time and effort into like getting people excited about participating getting people excited about, you know, like, for example, whenever there's an art show coming to town that I know about that's like interactive, interactive art, like in LA, there was this rain experience where you walked into this dark room and it was raining in the center thing. But as you walked through it, it had motion sensors. So the rain would stop right where you are. But as you walked, it would then go behind you again. And, be, and, and it was this interesting sort of experience where you were immersed in this. Now, is it art? Meh, maybe. Um, it's, but it is an experience. And because you're there, you're going to see some other artwork, like some other things that are beautiful that, you know, are, are timeless pieces that you might not otherwise, if you were not a regular in the artistic world, might not actually, you know, take part in or be interested in. And I think for me, anything in art that is immersive is winning because that's when I start to invest. And that's when an audience can invest and gives themselves permission to invest um, it, because it, it becomes about them instead of about uh, presenting. I wanna see a person, I want to see experiences, I want to see truth. And the only way to do that and is, it means that you have to trust what you're doing as an artist, as a presenter, and you have to trust the audience to be able to, um, you know, to be able to accept it. And anytime we have to try to prove something as a performer, 
we fail because then it's not about telling the truth anymore. You know, it's about saying I matter. And anytime it becomes about me mattering, then it's not about the work. It's not about the art and it's not about communicating. It's about the selfishness of, um, of needing, needing something from someone else instead of here I am to give you something. If, if I had done my show and not memorized, if I had gotten up there and just performed with music, I would have, that would have been about me because I would have been needing something from them instead of me giving something. I had to put that extra work and effort into memorizing my pieces because that was the only way I knew that I would be able to communicate with them and actually relate. And just, and I, I think that, um, that we forget that. And, and, and I, I share that as an example because I think that so often artists, um, you know, forget that the whole purpose of all of this is for us to communicate with each other about something that matters. Whether it's, you know, whether yeah. it's subject matter, um, whether it's a musical motif that, um, that we find like stays with us, like there's a reason it stays with us. Um, you know, when you hear, like I was listening, you sent me Richard, um, the singer that you were excited for me to listen to. Is it Sandrine Piao? Something Piao, yeah. yeah. And I was listening to Zotimbra and I recall, you know, in, in the end of that piece of the third of the, the Strauss, um, you know, there's the horn solo. Da, 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 da. You know, and it's just this like, it's this moment where we step away from everything and we are transported. And when, and when the horn player knows that that is what that moment is, all of a sudden there's this kind of electric current that is shared. And I feel like when we, when we can do that, which is actually whenever we play something beautiful or perform something beautiful, like we have an obligation to. That's a really long answer, and I don't know. <laughs> but but it's nice, Rachel. I have strong feelings. <laughs> I've got a lot of feelings. Some, something you you um, you said in there uh, made me remind me of something you said earlier, which is about how excited you are about hearing what artists are going to come up with, having had this extended period away from the stage. And one of the interesting things for New Zealand, because people can go on the stage, is that a lot of people that we don't see here often, see here performing often, have returned to New Zealand. They're, they're New Zealanders who work generally overseas, studied overseas, but have come back um, because it's just a, 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 you know, a safer place to be at the moment. And that's quite exciting too. So we're seeing quite a lot of people who may have gone away not as the finished article coming back better singers or better musicians or perhaps people who, who are yet to go overseas are performing more than they would have been able to otherwise because they would have been under studies or whatever at a university and at Glyndebourne or whatever but here now they've, they've been able to perform and that's been interesting to observe and it's Unique to New Zealand, I think, probably in a couple of ways. First of all, New Zealand is somewhere they can perform. And second, New Zealand is somewhere they have to 
leave to become fully formed musicians. And I don't know that that is the case in the United States or in Europe. Um, so it's nice to see these people that you knew maybe when they were 20 coming back at 30 and seeing what they've become. Mm, beautiful. Like watching the trees grow from a sapling, you know, you know, and, and, and seeing it's like, wow, look at these branches. Look at this. Look at what, you know, look what it can do. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's, it's lovely, but also there's, there's a tinge of sadness in the sense that New Zealand education isn't sufficient to provide these people with that last bit of polish. Mm -hmm. we, we send people away with beautiful voices, um, but they come back as beautiful singers, you know? Yes. Mm. Yes. More refined. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I do think that, 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 is a, that is a truth. And I think that there are people, I think Dame Malvina Major is trying to change that. I think she, yeah. she's trying to create an educational system here, bringing, bring, I mean, hey, that, Russia did that. Like, you know, why, why do you think the Russian ballet is like freaking amazing? Well, you know, they took everyone from Paris and said, all right, you're coming here and you're going to teach us. <laughs> and you're going to learn and be amazing. And they are, you know, and the same thing, you know, with vocal technique. Like, I, I think that it is possible to bring people. I, I don't know, though, because New Zealand is uniquely situated so that it is a paradise in a way. I don't know that you can ever reach without stepping away from it, the artistic heights that are kind of required for you to go, like you're kind of, you kind of need to go through that sense of loss or, you know, see the beauty of a specific place in, in Europe where this was written or, you know, the colds of, you know, the North and understand like, what people go through there. I feel like there's something about being in a place where something was written that changes your perspective. You know, when I, when I walked the hills that Brahms used to walk, I felt his music and I felt his presence differently. And I think that it's in a way almost a rite of passage, but how beautiful at this time that these people who have stepped away in order to gain different perspectives have come back and sharing that beauty and hopefully sharing, you know, that expertise so that an audience can say, oh, wow, that's, that's different. You know, that's kind of amazing. I don't understand it necessarily, but, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and my feeling is that we've produced some really nice singers, you know, there's some Absolutely. Um, very good singers, but I guess that's true of, true of any, singers from any country in that you need to mature as a person before you can mature as a singer is that would that, is that a fair comment yes <laughs> I, I think that you know in order to to create nuance you need to have experienced some subtlety within your own life certainly there are you know I don't believe that you have to have experienced everything in order to be able to authentically portray it on the stage. Like, I don't no. think you need to kill someone to be able to, you know, play a character where you have to stab someone on stage. I don't think that you have to have died in order to, play, you know, like, yes, like these are things that I, you know, and there are some schools that say like, well, you've never experienced that. So you can't adequately portray it. And it's like, well, no, that's where acting comes in and you have to just be willing to, to go there emotionally um, to some extent, uh, in order to, you know, be, be believable. 
but but I do think that when it comes to getting into sort of the nuance and the minds and hearts of of composers, especially of composers that were alive, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, um, and even composers today, like I don't know, I don't know what the classical composer scene is like in New Zealand, but we are influenced by what's around us, and there's such beauty and richness surrounding every corner of this island, these islands. And, you know, how does that influence what people are writing about and singing about and performing? Yeah, I, I mean, landscape um, is, is a big theme amongst New Zealand composers. There's uh, the, the Polynesian tradition is also an important part of local composers' work. One thing we don't have, and you mentioned studying or performing musicians of 200, 300 years ago, is we tend not to have a great number of specialists. We don't have a great pool of early authentic performance musicians in the way that, I don't know, Holland or England or um, whatever has. And there's, there's a very good but relatively small group of uh, contemporary performance um, musicians as well. It's, it's, we, we tend not to have enough people to be specialists in these things, like more generalists. I don't know if that's the case overseas so much. Population thing more than anything else. Right. And I think maybe a way that that could be talked about or remedied potentially could be with if you if there were some kind of an exchange program for, you know, master classes and for like a semester having having people who are, you know, experts in, in this kind of song or, you know, people who, yeah, I, I think bringing people over here, it would be key you wouldn't have to send all of your singers away if you brought in specialists to train them for like say a year sabbatical and you just rotating who those people are i think then you would be able to to get that level of expertise but you would need to bring bring people in and have them working i mean you know that's 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 why i went to vienna like i studied in vienna with with experts in you know, in understanding that culture and the writing of, of, of those composers. And it changed the way that I approached that music, you know, and at Manhattan School, I was, you know, working with people that wrote the textbooks on these subjects. And so, and so the way that I approach that music is influenced by that experience. And that would be the case for anyone um, going to study in those places from anywhere in the world. But if you want to create, if you want to have that level of, you know, of teaching, then you have to invite it. And, and I feel like actually New Zealand is really poised right now to be a place where you could attract some of the best in the world, you know, just because people have sort of seen how incredible this place is and might want to have a break for a year, you know? I like talking to musicians about their their education and one thing that's really apparent amongst singers when uh, when they come back to perform here is you know you know maybe they've just studied in Manhattan or whatever they go wow I had no idea that you could study combat training and that I could get a whole semester of acting classes because you know at Auckland University for example the the vocal training is really good but you don't get combat training and things like that. In order to be a well-rounded performer, you have to have a lot of knowledge. And I mean, my freshman year in college, I was in class from eight o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock at night. And I had a half an hour break because there was just so much to learn. 
you know, when you come in as a vocalist, you haven't been learning all of that repertoire for years and years and years and years. You've been wearing, learn, learning some of it, but you aren't learning a ton of it because your voice isn't ready for it. And, right. you know, as a young singer, it's very easy to want to um, push yourself and to sing stuff that you're not ready for because it's beautiful. And because your voice is young and simple. And so you can just kind of like push it. And then you're like, oh, shoot, you know, five years later. Uh, 10 years later um potentially and but yeah i think i think bringing in experts and like you know having a program that is well-rounded you know you you because you do need so much more than vocal training you must have acting you must do dance and stage combat and you must do some you know you need to do sight singing and a little bit of ear training and music history and theory you know these are these are all things that you need to do to become a well-rounded musician and just frankly to help remind you to be humble because there is so much that you don't know I think one of the um he's talking about being humble and I, I can't remember if I've if we've talked about this before but that's a thing of hanging out with other musicians who are as good as you and better a lot of a lot of musicians that I know were the best violinists they'd ever met until they went to the New England Conservatory or you know that kind of thing. Like welcome to the moment of of you know sort of a reckoning moment it's when when you go and you become the little fish in a much bigger pond and depending on your personality that either helps you to thrive or that makes you sink and you know young people trusting themselves and really listening to their heart to know what kind of a program is going to benefit them. Like there's, there are programs, you know, in the backwoods of, of Virginia that may actually be better for someone who can be the star of the show and who can thrive as long as, you know, as long as they're able to get the stage experience they need and get the classes that they need versus, you know, somebody who actually just needs to be, you know, has always had the most incredible voice, but just doesn't, have the training in other parts of, of, of their package that needs to have those other parts worked on so that they can go forward and, and be the best version of themselves. One, one thing I hear quite a lot is where musicians didn't realize how much application they had to put into something, didn't realize how much work was required to be a professional musician. Oh my gosh, like one of the reasons why it's so frustrating when people will say things like, sort of discounting what it means to be a musician. It's like, oh, but you just do this. And it's like, you have no idea <laughs> like, <laughs> how much work, how many hours, how much effort it is to be able to just do that. It's not like I get up and like, I'm singing a lullaby, you know, mm. like it's, it's, it isn't that like, it's even if it is a lullaby, the amount of work and effort and time that goes into preparing yourself to be able to execute that flawlessly, you know, mm. Um, is is you know hours and hours and hours and yeah I, I think of a, a young musician I met who had just come back from Peabody he was um, uh, he is an instrumentalist mm -hmm. he just said to me I, I had no idea I would be working that hard I thought I was just going over there to play bass you know <laughs> yep and you're in class and then being, yeah. being surrounded by people who were living and breathing it all day every day yeah, that was a moment for me in school and why I was so grateful to have chosen a conservatory because I knew that I didn't want to take any more math classes. Like that was very clear for me. But and yet I was taking, you know, math classes to an extent because of the kind of work that theory is, 
um, and the kind of work that, you know, and there were a lot of times where I was like, do I really need to know this? And it's like, yeah, you do. And you need to know it because you need to understand your history because understanding your own history, you know, and, and the history of your craft is what makes you a well-rounded musician and what helps you to, you know, remind you that you are one in a vast sea of experience, knowledge, um, information, you are one. And that's a beautiful thing and it's important, but it helps you to remember that, that you have a responsibility as well. One thing I'm not sure that we're all that good at in New Zealand is taking gifted young people and showing them that there's, there's a future in this or you know, taking a gifted young person who's a very good violinist and making sure that they're given the right tools to choose violin over becoming a doctor or an engineer or that kind of thing. We have quite good outreach programs for very young people, but I feel that once, I'm, I'm not sure if this is true of other countries, but we lose a lot of people along the way. Everyone needs to know that there's someone that they can turn to when they have a question, like when, when they aren't sure, like, I mean, and frankly, I grew up in a home that, that just didn't, didn't really have that for me either. It wasn't until I sort of reached out to some other people and really had to kind of like sift through and figure it out. But also I, you know, America is a country where, where you are encouraged to do something like that. And I don't know if, if New Zealand is like, is it a place where it's like, you know, I kind of want to do a little bit of a trailblazer thing. Is that okay? I don't know if that sort of attitude and kind of perspective taking and risk taking is something that is encouraged. Um, I, I do and have experienced um, the tall poppy syndrome and it's, it's, very, it's very real, it's alive and well. Um, I was working with a group of youth uh, ages uh, 14 to 18. Um, I was helping prepare a song for them to perform and I couldn't get these kids to make a sound. I didn't understand why, because they said they wanted to sing. <laughs> and for me, it's like, well, if you want to sing, why aren't you singing? But, um, but I think it was this fear of if my voice sticks out, then that's not okay. And after encouraging them to be that tall poppy and to not be afraid of it, and to accept that like, this is, you know, you'll never know how, how high you can grow. And instead of maybe you being afraid of being the tall one, help those around you to grow. And then let's see how tall we can be together. Does that yeah, make that's sense? an interesting one that the tall poppy thing in New Zealand, I tend to think of it as more of a, I'm going to put it in a more positive spin. I'm going to say an egalitarianism versus uh, meritocracy. But I think the egalitarianism, although it's something we hang our national hat on, is not necessarily true. Yeah. It could be in the yeah. arts, less so in sports, I guess. But like many countries, New Zealand is a country where, where sports are much more revered, or well, sports people are much more revered than arts people, with one exception, and that's the um, Kiritikanoa. Yeah, I mean, I share I share this with people a lot, though. You know, there's there's that quote by Marian Anderson: "You're you're playing small doesn't serve the world." Equality is a beautiful thing, like saying that we are all able to, you know, we are stronger together. All of these things are true, but together does not mean the same. 
And equal doesn't actually mean the same. You know, it means balanced. And to, in my estimation, that's, you know, that's according to me. But, um, and I think it, I think it has to be that way because otherwise we end up, we end up shortchanging ourselves and sometimes others because we are all created with, with a different, a different genetic makeup. We all have different strengths and weaknesses and, and abilities um, and come from different advantages or disadvantages or, you know, situations that will give us certain kinds of strengths. And I think that, um, that you can honor that egalitarian ideal and idea and sort of way of being by still and still support the individual. Yeah, and maybe that's also a reason why New Zealand musicians should go overseas instead of automatically graduating to an orchestra, um, really, fight, really having to fight for a place in, in a top university or... If you want to go to Curtis, you have to stand out and be the best. Yeah, and and the conservatory system, you know, it, none of it is none of it is perfect. But I but I do think that the striving for excellence and interpretation that is you know that is in keeping with the intents of a composer and of a time, like there's something beautiful about about that tradition and kind of necessary for helping us not forget where we've come from, what we've learned and, you know, where we want to go. You, you mentioning the intent of a composer um, reminds me of a conversation I've been having lately, which is how creative are performers? Hmm. Are performers interpreters or are they creators? Is the, is the creative act only through the composer? I have thoughts on that, but I'm interested in knowing what you think. I think there has to be creativity with the performer. Like every person that picks up a piece to perform is going to have is going to have a unique spin on it. And if they don't, it'll be really boring. And that unique spin has to fall within within the context of of what is expected for the time, for the, uh, in which it was written, you know, it, or if it's, it's a, if it's a modern piece, like I would hope would be within conversation with the composer, you know, they're going to let you know what they want, what they don't want. Um, I know I, I recently did a recording of a piece as a demo for a show that I've developed over many years with a couple of composers and there was a line in it that um, I felt needed to be stretched like really far because I felt like it was sort of the crux of this piece. And I felt like when you take the time on that, then it really lands with the audience. And so in a way it was sort of a recomposition moment, but not, I mean, not really, it was just stretching it out. And, um, and it's so interesting because the composer never, the composer never said anything to me, but, in a conversation with the um, with someone who's getting ready for us to orchestrate this piece, and the composer commented, "Like I really loved how how you wrote that out and how you stretched out that line." And 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 that was not a comment to me. It was mm -hmm. a, it was a comment to the the person doing the orchestration because he could see it written in front of him. And I just thought that was so interesting because it needed to be on paper for him and. I don't know, anytime something can be collaborative, 
I feel like we end up with some nuances that we might not otherwise have had as long as it's not about ego. That's how I feel. <laughs> I'm just wondering if that, uh, and yeah, if that is creativity or it's artistry. And I think there's a, there's a difference. I think interp interpretation is artistry. And I think that composition is creativity. Um, this I, I, I may well get lots of hate mail for that, um, but it's the the English English comedian John Cleese said something similar mm. about actors and writers. Acting is is an interpretive act, um, whereas writing is uh, creative. And I don't say that as a writer because there's absolutely nothing creative about my writing. I'm you know I'm a journalist, but it's just something I think about quite a bit. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for for spending some time today and and just talking about you know questions that I don't know they, they, they it helps to feed my soul you know to think about music and art and what we can do to make it better and and reach more people. <laughs>